We're studying the nativity, that scene of Christ's birth, in order to learn from these primary characters of the story about joy. Joy. That's our purpose in freshly looking at this story, is to find joy in this season. Joy in what God has done through the incarnation of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. So we're on sermon four out of five. Five main characters, five lessons about finding joy. We considered the wise men who taught us the joy of pursuing the truth. Then we looked at angels who taught us the joy of serving the king. Shepherds, our study last week, taught us the joy of sharing our hope. And today we consider Mary and Joseph together. And from them we learn that we should find joy in believing God's words. Joy found in believing God's words. In order to guide us through our study, I want us to ask and then answer three questions this morning. Three questions about believing God's words. It seems like it goes without saying, isn't this what it means to be a Christian? To believe God's words? And yet, if we think about it, most of our struggles in the course of a week are because God's words are not weighing us down like an anchor holding us steady and instead we drift and we flounder a little bit because we're believing lies. We're pursuing things, even giving ourselves and our time and our energy to things that are not important, not in comparison with kingdom pursuits. And so while it sounds simple to believe God's words, and for the most part we're doing that, we really are staking eternity on this being true. But sometimes it's a lot easier to believe God's words about eternity than it is to believe God's words about a soft answer turning away wrath. Or God's words about Loving our spouse. Sometimes it's easy to believe that Jesus came to save sinners. And it's hard to believe that I'm really going to be okay as a teenager obeying God's words and honoring my parents when I feel like they're inconsistent or they're wrong. You see, believing God's words is the struggle every day whether it's his commands telling us what to do, whether it's his promises assuring us that when we do what he commands us to do, that is the way to live. It's not always easy to believe his words. And when we come to this familiar story, God's words are delivered to Joseph and to Mary. The words themselves are staggering and even the messenger of the words, boggles our minds. And yet from these two people, Mary and Joseph, we learn the lesson that joy is found 
in believing God's words. And I say words plural just to remind us that we often speak of God's word, and and by that we mean synonymously the Bible. But I want us to be thinking that these are words in the plural. These are sentences and thoughts. These are the, the heart of God being communicated to us. If you were to sit down with your family at lunch today and share words, it would be communication that shapes relationship or what we call fellowship. This is what we have with God through his word. We hear his words to us. He speaks still. And through the story of Mary and Joseph, God is is asking us to remember that he speaks to us and his words are words of life and joy. I want to ask this question first. And you'll see that there aren't really extra notes under this first question. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of an assignment for you. Maybe in the car ride home or over a meal, you could talk about the answer to this question. What makes it hard to believe God's words? What makes it hard to believe his words? When we lay it right out there, the God of the universe, giving us clear words in our language that we can understand, it it seems to make perfect sense. So why is it so hard to believe what God has said? Now, we could look at Mary and Joseph's account, but we don't see a whole lot there that really leads us to answer this question with specific points. But in thinking this through, let me at least get you started on a brainstorm of ideas. Because if you can know why it's hard to believe God's words, you'll know what you're up against this week. You'll know where the battle rages. I'd suggest to at least consider it's hard to believe God's words because of the devil's lies. Do you think Adam and Eve didn't know what God wanted from them in the garden? I don't think we can say that. I think we have to recognize God's word to them was clear. So why was it so hard to believe God's words? In that moment, standing before the tree, it's because of the devil's lies. His lies appeal to our desires. James 1 tells us we are drawn away by our own lust, our own desire, and we're enticed. It looks good, and so we get a little closer, and we start thinking maybe this could work. And that consideration is the idea of being enticed. It's it's drawing us into a conversation about whether we should do this. We're told that the devil is a master deceiver. He has snares and traps, well disguised. He comes to us as an angel of light, and yet his message is one of darkness He speaks as though he is concerned about truth. Has God said, he said to Adam and Eve, to the Son of God himself, in the 
taking on the form of man and the temptation in the wilderness, he says to the living word, isn't it written that, and he quotes some scripture? It's hard to believe God's words because of the devil's lies. Know that you are up against a deceiver. It's hard to believe God's words because sometimes we don't know well what God's words are. If we approach the revelation that God has given us in the Bible casually, do not be surprised that you fail in the Christian life consistently. When people say things like, I've tried, you know, to read my Bible and it just doesn't happen. I'm just, I just never get good at it or I just can't seem to get control of my anger. I've tried, I've repented of this sin before and I just can't see. And I, I think, what verses of scripture do we take and apply to that testimony? Listen, I, I believe Hebrews 12 that, there are sins that easily beset us as we run the Christian life. So please don't hear that you should never say, I'm struggling with sin or, you know, I can't get control of my anger. But if that's the only testimony we ever have, then I wonder if we're really coming to God's word and, and wrestling with what has God said about these things? Am I believing the devil's lies that I should have more in this life, and then when I don't get it, I'm angry all the time. We don't know what God's words are. And so it's hard to say my faith is anchored by this when I don't have a this to drop overboard and anchor my ship. Jesus did know God's words. You see, the first man... The first Adam heard God's words and was supposed to reflect God's glory in perfect obedience. But he didn't hearken back to what God has said. He didn't bring those words to bear in that moment of decision at the tree and he sinned. But as we sang in Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the second Adam would come and would be tempted even similarly to partake of something. But Jesus, the second Adam, knew exactly what God had said. He knew the words that are life and truth. And when tempted in the wilderness, the truth anchored him. And he accomplished perfect righteousness for us. That language of the second Adam is significant to us. It shows us that by knowing God's words, we can know the path of life, the way of righteousness. And so as we've studied in the Equip Hour the last couple of Sundays, the Swedish method of Bible study, just a tool to help us engage our minds with any passage of Scripture, because we want to equip you to be people of the Word, who know it well so that you can fight off the devil's lies and those lies being manifest in a culture all around you. 
redefining for you, if you let them, even words of virtue, things like love, God's plan for marriage, God's design in gender, sexuality. All these things that rage in our world are simply a departure from the basic truth that comes to us at the very beginning of God's account to us. What makes it hard to believe God's words? Sometimes we hear those words, but we want to know how it all turns out. God says, husbands, love your wives. And we want to know, well, okay, but if I sacrificially love them, is that going to turn their heart and they're going to start treating me better? Well, if I honor my parents, does that mean they're going to be more consistent or, or stop blaming me for this? or what? No, you don't get to know how it turns out. You're, you're supposed to believe God's words on their face value. Simply recognize this is what God has said. And I may not know how it turns out, but I'll believe them. That's faith. And faith isn't always easy. It's interesting when you think of this not knowing how it turns out. There there were parts of that that were true for Mary and Joseph. Joseph didn't know how this was going to turn out if he truly took Mary to be his wife, though she's already expecting, so everyone assumes she's been unfaithful, and now it's this ugly mess, this awkward, embarrassing situation, and is he going to be well-esteemed for taking her in, or or is he going to be rejected? And then we look at a later story, kind of the end of the nativity story when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And they hear Simeon prophesying there. And he says, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many. And he looks at Mary and says, and a sword will pierce your soul also. It makes me think, I don't know if I want to know how things work out. Maybe faith is actually easier. Maybe my finite abilities can't handle all the weight of the future. As much as we clamor to know, maybe it's the goodness of God to say, there's grace for today. Don't worry about how this turns out. Sometimes it's hard to believe God's words because... We want to control the situation since we think we can. And rather just hearing this is what God has said, he's got a plan. We think, okay, that's what he said, but, but what about this? Or maybe I could do this. And we want to scheme and plan and implement our ideas alongside of his. We'll just help him out a little. makes it hard to believe God's words because we get in the way. God's ways are not our ways, the prophet tells us. We can't comprehend all that God is doing. It's just not our job. It's not in our skill set to be omniscient and omnipotent. It's interesting, over in Luke chapter 1, it's the account of God's words to Mary. 
He sends the angel Gabriel to communicate to her. He communicates favor, God's grace, resting on Mary for this announcement she is about to hear. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. We're reminded that it's hard to believe God's words at times because they are words that seem to communicate the impossible. So just know that up front. Sometimes God's words to us will invoke in us a clear response of, that's impossible. That would never happen. We've given up hope. And in a sense, I say, that's kind of okay if our response is, I don't get it. How can that be? The angel just comes out and tells Mary, listen, I know this seems impossible to you. You having a son in this way, Elizabeth in her barren old age having a son, I know it sounds impossible. And if we're only talking, humanly speaking, it is. But the text says, with God, all things are possible. So rest in those moments of mind-boggling, inconceivable kind of words. And just know, I'll have to leave this to God, who does the impossible. Sometimes we fear what others will think. And so we set God's words aside and other times, it seems like all of our problems, all of our circumstances, all of the brokenness in life, all the stuff that hasn't met our expectations, our desires, all of those circumstances are, are like a, an, an, an enemy, an opponent debating us about the truth of God's word. God says this. And yet life and our problems say something else. And it's as if we're the jury and we're left to decide who is right. Is it true that God works all things for good? That he makes no mistake? That his way is perfect? When I can look at this list and I can hear these voices saying God must not be good. Your spouse has left you, some of your family in unbelief, finances are tight, the sickness isn't improving, 
There's all these situations. Miscarriage. Loss. Frustration. Folks, these are all things that have settled into the homes of everyone here. Those things are arguing against you believing God's words. It is no easy task for you to take point number one and say, okay, I'll do that this week. I'll believe God's words. It's simple faith, simple in its starkness, but it's not simple in its doing. It'll be spiritual warfare for you to believe God's words in the face of the circumstances of life that argue against him. Wrestle with these answers to the question, why is it so hard to believe God's words? Know what you're up against. Pray with the disciples, Lord, increase my faith. Help me to believe your words. An answer to that prayer may also solve our other problems that we think are simply, I have a hard time finding time to read my Bible. Maybe, maybe God needs to do a work in us in, in restoring or reviving our faith in his words so that we will make time to come to them. Question number two, what does it mean to believe God's words? What does it mean to believe God's words? What are we talking about here? Let me try to help you think through what this definition of belief might look like. Number one, you must know God's words. So we've kind of addressed that. You need to know what God has said about contentment, about purity, about kindness, about suffering. You need to know what God has said about Christmas. You know, the debates rage. How much Christmas should we celebrate? Should we put up a tree? Should we do lights? Can we tell stories of Santa Claus to our grandkids or kids? All of that should kind of fall away. Like, none of that should even get close to how you communicate the truth of Christmas. So if you're really on the ball and on fire about what Christmas really means, the rest of it just is, as Scrooge would say, it's the humbug of life. Humbug isn't bad, it just means kind of it's nonsense. It just, it's worthless, at least in comparison. And so he would say, bah, that old expression of, ah, done with that stuff. So what was he done with when he said bah? He was done with all that stuff that seemed to just be fluff and icing. It didn't have any substance. So make sure you're about substance this Christmas. Throw in the humbug with it. That's all fun too. But make sure you have the substance. Know what God has said. Know his words. Secondly, you must count those words that God has given as true. You must count God's words as true. Your limited understanding of what God is doing must not lead you to think that must not be right. Surely God doesn't mean that. 
Because that is the very question that the devil asked in Eden. So be on your guard. When you encounter God's words and have the thought, that must not be true. Be very careful. That is, that is the seed of a devilish line of thinking. Instead, when confronted with that thought in your own mind, could that be, that must not be right. Come to the scripture again and just keep coming to God's words and see what is written there. Count it as true. There may be times when you need to open your Bible saying, I believe this is true, and then read it. Because in your suffering and in the darkness of life, in the valley of shadow, you need to be prepared with why you're coming to this book. It's not to find some crutch to help you walk or some little nugget. You have to come to this believing it is true. And the first step to the fall, as we think of it, the disobedience and taking of the fruit of the tree, the first step was asking the question, is that really true? That's not intellectual honesty to question the word of God. It's not scholarly to question the word of God. But those are the kind of virtues that are assigned to people who want to question the word. Deconstruction is a big word in our culture now. And it assumes this, this spirit of elite intellectualism or, you know, I just have to see it and, and I, I got to analyze it all. Well, you can't out-analyze and out-evaluate God. It's a fool's errand to think that you, in your mind, are going to try to prove or establish that God's word is true. So don't do it. Come to the word of God saying, God has said this. It is true. Start there. That does not exclude following steps of incredible scholarly study. Doesn't exclude examining biblical languages or studying commentaries of those who have written about truth before. No, there can be great scholarship associated with Bible study, but scholarship does not make for faith. Start with faith. God has said this. I count his words as true. What you'll find in the pursuit of an academic study of the word is that it just proves itself true again and again and again. You may not understand fully. You may not even agree with God's words. Why would we think we would always? With lies swirling and our own desires pulling us in directions, there are times we don't agree, and yet we come to God's word and we realize this is what God has said, and we submit ourselves to the word. We decide to count God's words as true. But there's another element here that I want us to think of in understanding what it means to believe God's words. You must be affected by God's words. 
You must be affected by them. In other words, they move you to action, to a change of mind, perhaps. Perhaps a change of emotion, a change of behavior. You are affected by the words. And I want you to notice this affecting in the lives of Mary and Joseph. You may be in Matthew chapter 1, so let's look there first. When Joseph hears the words of God and is faced with this pursuit of joy in believing God's words, what do we know of how Joseph received these words from God? It's interesting that in the account of Joseph, what little were told of this man in the few words given to him are precise words that communicate he was clearly affected by the words, he believed them based on his action. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel says to Joseph, take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the only other thing we know of Joseph in this text is in verse 24. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And then you probably have a colon or a dash. He took his wife. So the scriptures are really careful in Joseph's account to give us the action that he was commanded, bizarre as it was. Those are the words that are hard to believe. But we see his faith in the simple restatement of his obedience. He was affected by those words. They meant something to him. So he did, as the angel said, he took Mary as his wife. But then it happens again in the next chapter. Now Jesus has been born, and we read in verse 21, or rather, verse 13, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. In verse 14, labors, it seems, to give us the same verbs. He rose and took the child and departed. So rise, take, and flee were the commands, the words that he was given. Rose, took, and departed. And then it happens one more time. An angel appears to him in verse 19, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Verse 21, he rose and took the child and his mother and went. Rise, take, go, rose, took, went. Everything we know of Joseph in the nativity, limited information as it is, is careful to document in every instruction Joseph heard through strange revelation, hard words to hear, hard to believe, He was affected as evidenced by simple obedience. Just do exactly what was said. The Christian life, yes, we could say in some ways, is is complicated and nuanced, and there's, there's a lot to think about. And in other ways, maybe we could be helped by thinking of it as really basic, really childlike. God says this, and so I do it. 
doesn't mean there aren't times where, oh, well, man, I'm not good at that, or I'm, I'm afraid to do that, or, or I don't understand this. I know. That, that's all just part of it. That, that's what adds to the complexity, but let's remember it's simple. God said this, and so I do this. This is what it means to believe God's words. Mary's account is a little different. It's not matched up with those exact commands, but nonetheless, we see Mary being affected by the truth. We see in verse 38, in response to the impossible revelation, words hard to believe, Mary, you're going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit, hard enough to believe. Your child's going to be the promised son of David to sit on a throne forever. Okay, now we're really in the realm of hard to believe. Not only having a son miraculously, but having God the Son as a son. And Mary's response, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Impossible words, but words of God they are. So let it be according to your word. It's an expression of faith. And if we question that, then we can read in verse 45 when Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken her, to her by the Lord. It's a response of faith. She believed the words that God had said. It affected her not only in faith and submission, but ultimately we see as she begins her song of praise, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Joy. That's what we're after. We're trying to figure out this joy part of this good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And now we're learning that the path to joy is this path of believing God's words, even when they seem hard, even impossible. So what does it mean to believe God's words? We know them, we count them as true, and we're affected by them. It brings about change in us, in our thinking, if not change in our behavior. Finally, let's consider this question. What were the words to be believed? What is the message? What's really being said here that was true for Mary and Joseph and it's true for us too? So that we have actual words that we should be believing this week. If we were to summarize the words to Joseph, tailored obviously to a specific story, a specific moment in the unfolding of redemption, and yet words that still mean something for us today, we would say the words to be believed are this, the words of a successful Savior. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I think Peter knew these words well when he writes in his letter that God is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there's a little word in there that Peter included. In the old language, it reads this way. God is, not, or God is long-suffering to us 
word to us. The angel told Joseph he will save his people from their sins. Peter, writing about the days later when people are saying, oh, where's this promise of his coming? He's never coming back. Peter's answer was, oh, yes, he is. You scoffed at the flood before and his judgment showed up. Now you're scoffing again. His judgment will show up, but he's long-suffering to us, to his people, because he made a promise in the name Jesus that he would save his people from their sins. And the only reason we're here today and not worshiping around the throne of the Lamb in heaven is because not all of the sheep have come into the fold. That's the only reason. Jesus will save his people from, his, from their sins and he's long-suffering to us. He'll keep the promise of Christmas. He'll save them all. The words to be believed today are the words of a successful Savior. A Savior who saves sinners, who is never thwarted by unbelief. That's good news. Because the most stubborn sinner you know is not more tenacious than the mercy of God. So the words to Joseph are for us as well. We have a successful Savior, one who for all eternity will be completely joyful and satisfied in the rescue of his church. But there are words to Mary as well, specific to her in her life, in that moment of redemptive history, but also significant for us, and they are words of a triumphant kingdom. See, Mary wasn't told to name her son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary was told, your son will be royalty. Your son will be a son of David to sit on a throne. And that throne, that kingdom will know no end. It's going to reach the corners of the earth. So that he will be worshipped in heaven one day by people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So go, disciples with this good news of great joy because we serve a successful Savior who is implementing a triumphant kingdom. Is it any wonder that Handel, when studying the prophets and linking them with the gospel story of Christmas, wrote that beautiful piece, The Messiah. For unto us a child is born. Jesus, he'll save his people from their sins. But then hallelujah, he's king of kings and Lord of lords and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's no wonder they sing over and over again, hallelujah, praise the Lord for this work, for this word of a successful savior and a triumphant kingdom. God has kept his promise to send us a Savior King. Are you today trusting in Jesus as your Savior? And are you serving Him as though He were your Lord? These are words for us to believe still. 
These are words that force us to reckon with good news. Jesus saves sinners. Is he your savior? And is he your king? Remember, still under the good news, which means we are compelled now to share that good news. Let me encourage you this week as you gather with friends, family, co-workers, and in all things falling under the umbrella of Christmas or New Year's, be the voice of joy. Not that you don't have a voice that is well-informed about politics and the problems of our world, but maybe at least subject that in your conversations of this week to, to a message of joy. It may be just some form of a simple line that when people are talking about the politics of our land and how everything's going downhill and it's a mess and the schools are bad and the officials are bad and everything's bad, that at least you would introduce joy by saying something like, you know what, I believe the Bible tells us that's why Jesus came at Christmas, to fix all this broken stuff. And a couple things might happen. One, everyone awkwardly looks at you and says, maybe we should just watch football. Or two, they might be intrigued and want to engage that a little bit. But no matter what their response, you've proclaimed that you believe the words of a successful Savior in a triumphant kingdom. And, and the last chapter hasn't been written. The last chapter is, he comes again. Another promise we need to believe. And he comes to establish his blessing as far as the curse is found. So let people know about the joy that is ours. Oh, I, like I said, you, you may be able to talk politics and government and solutions to problems as citizens in our nation. But let's let that be secondary to our citizenship in God's kingdom. And, and let's make sure we're making known that therein lies the reason for our joy at the good news that was announced to Mary and Joseph, Jesus, a Savior, Son of David, King of Kings. Heavenly Father, make us a joyful people. And only truth can do that, only your truth. But there is... No greater truth that produces joy than the name Jesus, Savior of sinners in the mercy of our God. He who is mighty has done great things for us. For we, like Adam and Eve, were expelled for our sin with no hope of turning back, no hope of being perfectly righteous, no hope of bringing glory to our Creator, we were lost. We were dead in sin. And yet Jesus came to seek us and to save us. This morning we rejoice in a successful Savior, still demonstrating His success at saving. We rejoice in a triumphant kingdom. Believing now, we worship not a babe in a manger, but a king on a throne who triumphed over death and hell on the old rugged cross and through the door of an empty tomb. 
but now sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Lord, give us fresh hope and confidence in these words that we have from you. And may we look to the future, not in knowing the details of the path we will walk, but knowing the destination. We will meet our king as he returns triumphantly to make his blessing known, to make his rule known, his justice known, his judgment known to his enemies. But as he comes to welcome us into the presence of his eternal joy. For this good news of great joy, which is for all people, make us grateful. We ask all this so that Christ would be magnified in this season where we celebrate his first coming, even as we await in faithfulness his second. Oh, Father, thank you for this plan of redemption. Oh, Son, thank you for submitting to the Father's will to accomplish for us righteousness, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. O Holy Spirit, thank you for convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment and opening our eyes to the treasure that is worth all of our lives of obedience and worship. We, like shepherds and wise men, come and adore Christ our Lord, for he alone is worthy. And all God's people said, Amen. Go enjoy.